Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. It's good to see you this morning. Good to see our visitors with us. And appreciate so much uh, this opportunity to focus our attention, as Stephen has mentioned, on the observance of the Lord's Supper and us thinking together about what Jesus has done for us. And I want to give some thoughts in that direction for a short lesson before uh, we call the men up to serve us the Lord's Supper and we partake together in memory of Jesus. So we take the Lord's Supper each Sunday, but on the fifth Sunday, on months with a fifth Sunday, uh, the elders have set aside this time for a special emphasis. And the idea is that we really focus our attention and our thinking on what Jesus has done for us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about a specific element of what happened when Jesus offered himself for us. I want us to think for a few minutes about the fact that they spat in his face. In Luke 18 and verse 32, it says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. Jesus prepares his disciples for the fact that he's not just going to be killed, but that he will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. So let's think about that for a moment. First of all, what that means is that Jesus endured outrageous Shame. Each one of those things indicates more than just Jesus is going to die. To be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Those are not part of death. In fact, to be mocked doesn't really hurt anyone. It shames them. To be shamefully treated doesn't injure Jesus. Spit doesn't wound What is being said in a text like this and what is being shown when we see the shameful treatment is that Jesus is enduring something more than death, more than physical pain. And I want to think about that with you for a moment. In Matthew 26 and verse 59, I want to read with you. It says, Matthew 26 and verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward. We're in verse 61 now. And said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The scene of this little story is that Jesus has been betrayed by Judas and he has been brought into the Sanhedrin, which is the council of the Jews. It is the middle of the night. He is being treated like a criminal. And when the accusation arises that he claimed to be able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, Jesus refuses to answer. And so finally, the high priest is really in a bind. 
Because the testimony, the witnesses are not really working out. Jesus is not saying anything incriminating. And so he puts Jesus under oath and demands, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus admits it. In fact, he admits more than that. That they will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. And the council explodes. Of course, I mean that figuratively. They explode. And suddenly everyone is angry. The high priest tears his robe. He declares it blasphemy. The council condemns him. He is worthy of death. But something more happens. After this trial, in the aftermath of this horrific injustice, it says in verse 57, Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So they have some fun with Jesus. And they spit in his face. They mock his prophetic powers. Oh, you're such a a brilliant Messiah. Why don't you tell us who it is that's hitting you? Turn the page to Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, at this point, Jesus has already been condemned by Pilate. He has been beaten, meaning scourged, meaning he is bloody and surely weak from the whipping. And yet there is more shame to come. In Matthew 27 and verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And when they spit on, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. So they strip him and they put on a scarlet or a purple robe like a king. And like a king, they give him a reed to be a pretend scepter. And like a king, he needs a crown. So they twist a row of thorns together and they knock it onto his head. And they mock him and they spit on him. And they say as they would to their Caesar, Hail, King of the Jews. It says specifically in verse 30, They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Spitting is a universal sign of shame and disgrace. Spitting in someone's face is fighting words everywhere, in every culture, all over the world. It's also true in the Bible. God declares to Moses that a woman whose father spits in her face would be unclean or shamed for seven days. There's also a story in the Old Testament where If a man refuses to raise up children for his dead brother, that the wife of his dead brother is to come to him and pull off his sandal and spit in his face as a sign of the disgrace that he deserves. So when Jesus is spit on, there is something more than pain. There is shame. Then when he is hoisted up on the cross... They continue to mock him. Look down in verse 39 of Matthew 27. In verse 39 it says, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. They mock his teachings. 
They mock the idea that he's the son of God. Oh, you're so close to God. You're such a great prophet. Oh, you saved other people. Well, why are you on the cross now then, Messiah, son of God? I am certain that if they could have reached him, they would have spat on him again. The cross itself is an instrument of shame. We have lost this because we have glamorized and romanticized the cross quite a bit in the centuries since Jesus' crucifixion. This is what Cicero says. Cicero was a famous Roman orator. He said, Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his heart, and his ears. He also called crucifixion or the cross the tree of shame. The Jewish law declared that everyone who died on a tree was cursed. One scholar said to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live. A punishment for those who were subhuman. And you know, we know that because all of that idea of all the shame, of all the no Roman should have to look at or even think about a crucifixion. All of that is summed up with Paul's little phrase. Even death on a cross. Not just death, but the shame. So as we commemorate Jesus' death and resurrection this morning, we need to remember this shaming. We need to remember them spitting in his face and laughing at his words and bowing in mockery. But that's not all. Because we also need to see that this shaming is part of what the Old Testament prophets who foresaw the Messiah said would happen to the Messiah. In the famous Psalm 22, the psalm that begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Doesn't it sound familiar? It's what we just read. They're saying the very thing that David prophesied they would say about the Messiah someday. Subhuman, a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Everyone mocking the shamed Messiah. Go with me over to Isaiah chapter 53. I want to look for a moment in some of Isaiah's prophecies here. Because you'll see a connection to what we've been reading about what happens to Jesus. Isaiah 53. This little section is a section of Isaiah that is directed and speaking about someone called the servant. Who is a Messiah type figure. And Isaiah 53 is one we are very familiar with. But there are some others in this section that I think we're not as familiar with. That also relate to the shame we see Jesus experiencing. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you hear the rejection? Do you hear the shame in that? Despised and rejected. And we, we hid our faces. Something that is so shameful, we don't even want to look at it. That is what Jesus endured for us. Now, it's clear from Isaiah's prophecy here that this has to do with the weight of our sin. In verse 4 to 6, he talks about he has borne our griefs. He is suffering on our behalf. 
Jesus does not deserve to be shamed. If anyone deserves to be shamed, it is you and me. And yet Jesus accepts the shame because it is what God's will for him demands. Turn the page back to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. This is also a servant text. In Isaiah 50 and verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant is speaking here as well. And he speaks of his obedience to God. In verse 5 especially, the idea, I was not rebellious. I didn't turn backward. The Lord opened my ear. He made me receptive to his will. And so what I did in verse 6 is I gave my back to those who strike. And I didn't hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. They spat in my face and I took it because it was the will of God. I absorbed it all. I gave my back to them. I gave my cheeks to them so that I would endure outrageous shame. So I want you to imagine in your mind's eye this group of hypocritical, fancy-robed Jewish leaders who after condemning the Son of God have not had enough but must come and spit in His face. And I want to picture in your mind's eye these Roman soldiers who are probably desperate and frustrated with constantly having to deal with these problematic Jews. And now they have one of them who has been condemned and been beaten. And they say, you know what, let's have a little fun with them. And so they dress him up like a king and they spit in his face. And I want you to remember that Jesus willingly endured this because he wanted God's will to be accomplished and because he wanted to take my sins away. But I want to be very clear that shame is not the end of the story of Jesus because the second part of that is that Jesus experienced the vindication of God. I want to keep reading here in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 in verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. You hear it? Those are the words of a vindicated man. He says, yes, I endured the spitting. They pulled out my beard. They beat me on the back. But I was not shamed, he says in verse 7. I have not been disgraced. Instead, God is with me and he vindicates me. That is also the story of the Messiah. Yes, the story of shame, but also the story of vindication. So while the prophecies point to suffering and humiliation, they don't end there. And we can't allow them to end there in our own thinking or in our own observance of the Lord's Supper. It's not just shame. It is also vindication. Turn a page back to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. This is another servant song. 
And I want you to hear that same juxtaposition of shame and vindication all in one verse here. Isaiah 49 and verse 7. It says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. All right, do you hear it? Despised, abhorred, servant. And then, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So suddenly, the one who is abhorred and despised is the one everyone else is now bowing to. All the kings bow. So you have, in one verse, shame and vindication. The servant will not suffer shame forever. And we see that in Jesus. Yes, there is shame. Yes, it is a horrible story. And yet the story doesn't end with Jesus on a cross or Jesus in a grave. And that is also part of what we need to remember as we partake together. Go with me. I want to look at two New Testament passages here. One is in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. As Jesus emerges from the empty tomb, he has some things to say to his people about connecting these two things with some of the prophecies we have just been reading. Luke 24 And verse 25. Luke 24 and verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. By the way, I believe that all is emphatic in what Jesus is saying. You believe some of it, but you don't believe all of it. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you hear it? That he had to suffer and enter into his glory. The suffering and the glory were all a part of what was going to happen to the Messiah. In verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So he says, this was all necessary and you can now understand it and process it that this has always been God's plan and God's will. The empty tomb changes everything. Everything is different now. Now, the suffering and the shame is not the end. Now, the tomb is empty and the Messiah emerges glorified. Turn with me over to Hebrews 12. This is the other passage in the New Testament I want to look at. Hebrews 12. We talked about this passage a few weeks ago when we focused on the cloud of witnesses part. But of course, Jesus is the one witness that is the most important witness as we try to run the race that he has already run. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So this text presents Jesus as sort of our trailblazer. He is the one who has gone before and shown us how when we trust God and we endure, that we'll receive the prize, or in his case, we'll be seated at the right hand of God. But he talks about the joy 
that was set before him in verse 2. And that because of that joy, he despised the shame and endured the cross with that sense of despising. He walked every shameful step because he kept looking beyond. And where is he now? Now he is seated at the right hand of God. Please understand, that's not just a theological statement. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God is huge because it means he's not in the grave. It means he's not in the dustbin of history. He's not just somebody who lived and died and had some interesting ideas and now we kind of look at him and think about, oh, well, he really changed a lot of things. He is still alive and he is still reigning. So shame is not the end. God has vindicated him. Can you imagine how things change with that? The apostles had this experience where suddenly they look back and they start thinking about, you remember when he said that about the temple? And in three days he would raise it up? Huh. And slowly they begin to piece together. Maybe that meant that. And I didn't realize how much Jesus had said and how much now it all makes sense. The things that they mock him with. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let God deliver him now if God desires him. You remember all these things they said? Well, now they all sound a little different, don't they? Because you know what? God did deliver him. And he did eventually, in a way, come down from the cross. He did save others and he did save himself. God delivered. So the cross shaming, the mocking, the fake coronation, and the spitting, it's merely the last bit of outrageous shame before God intervenes and dramatically exalts His Son. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we partake, we need these two dimensions. The incredible, outrageous shame Jesus endured and the remarkable vindication he received. I want to say, there is a place here for intense emotion. These are the emotions that these thoughts produce in me. Jesus suffered this for me. I deserve it. He does not. If anyone here deserves to have someone spit in their face, it is me. It is certainly not him. It makes me feel a sense of gratitude and that Jesus in taking on this burden has done for me what I could not do for myself. But there is also joy here. The joy that says our hero lives. Our Savior has emerged victorious from the grave and he reigns and he awaits us. He has redeemed even a cross. Let's think about those things as we partake. I'd like to invite the men to come up and to serve the supper for us. Just want to share a brief thought from there. Hebrews 13. And uh, then I will offer the invitation for anyone who is here who needs to respond in some way to the gospel message. In Hebrews 13, I want to read verses 11 through 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 11. 
It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So the Hebrew writer makes a comparison between the idea of how animals were slaughtered, not in the camp or not in the city, but in a place that was okay for things to be sort of away from the people, outside. And then he also says, as a comparison, Jesus suffered outside the city. When Jesus is crucified, it's not in town, it's outside. Because the kinds of things that happened when someone was crucified were not something to be associated with normal life. But the Hebrew writer makes an interesting statement in verse 13. He says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In the same way that Jesus took on shame and reproach, he says, Let's be willing to go to him in the same spirit and be willing to endure shame. There's a story about uh, something that happens in the early days of the church in Jerusalem where the apostles are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And many in the Sanhedrin, that same council that we talked about earlier that had condemned Jesus and spat in his face, many in the Sanhedrin want to kill the apostles. There's one man, Gamaliel, who says, no, we shouldn't kill them, but we should beat them and threaten them. And so they are threatened and beaten. And it sounds like to us, oh, good, until you think about what that would involve. We don't know exactly how many times they were beaten, but the standard policy for Jewish leaders was that 39 lashes were given. There were 12 apostles. It's a lot of lashes. And when you think about what it would be like to be beaten, to be beaten when you are innocent, be beaten not for a crime, but because you have spoken in the name of Jesus. Think about what it would be for each one of those strikes to leave a mark or open a wound. Think about how your life would be changed to be beaten in this way. I mean, your back is never going to look the same. You're going to bleed everywhere. You are now considered a criminal, even though you've done nothing wrong. Here you have terrorists and hypocrites running around in Jerusalem free while you are an enemy of the state because you believe in Jesus. But there is an amazing thing that is said that when those 12 apostles leave the council, the text says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. If we serve Jesus, we're going to suffer dishonor and shame. There will be people who think less of us. And I don't know exactly what form that will take. I don't know if it will take forms like what the apostles went through. It seems unlikely to me, but it is certainly not impossible. It could be that we lose people's respect. It could be that people assume they know our motives. And so they assign us evil motives. It could be that people think we are dumb. It could be that we lose jobs. It could be that families in some ways are separated. It could be that we lose status. I don't know all the forms that might take. I'm not a prophet. I don't know the future. 
But here is what I know. The Hebrew writer is calling us to not just look at the example of Jesus suffering shame and say, thank you. But instead to say, now I have to be willing to bear the reproach he endured. I need to be ready in whatever form it takes to suffer disgrace. I need to be more concerned about God's view of me and my life than what people think. And if people don't like it and they disregard me or they ignore me or I don't advance or I'm not popular, that I rejoice that I am counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. I go out to him outside the camp and bear his reproach the way he has borne my reproach. So Jesus says, show faith in the face of disgrace. What form is that going to take in your life? That's the question. I know for many, there is a hesitation to follow Jesus. And that hesitation is almost always to do with people. What will people say? What will people think? What will people in my family do? What does that mean in regards to people? And the Hebrew writer, Jesus' example itself, calling us to be willing to suffer shame for the name. So is there something that needs to change in your life this morning? This is the time we've set aside. If you have a need, and we can help you to be right with God, to be baptized into Christ, to make something right that's wrong in your life, and we can pray with you about that. This is the time to let us know about that and let us help you. But especially, I want to say, if you're concerned, if you're wary that there's something there that other people might not like, remember the example and the courage of Jesus. Remember the apostles who are rejoicing when there is shame involved. Remember what God thinks. And let other people go their way. You suffer if suffering is required. You follow the Lord. Can we help you to do that? We invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.